Today we start a new series on the life of King David. Amazing grace indeed. Here now from 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They said, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abedinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So we sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text today. Lord, be our teacher today. Fill us, guide us, shape this conversation in the power of your Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, guide us. Risen Lord, lead us. Savior, thank you for saving us. Help us to embrace that salvation as we meet it in the life of King David. Amen. Well, I'm excited about this series. But you know, before there was King David, there were others who came before him. I wonder if someone wrote a book about you, who the key people in your history would be. What would their history be? Think about that for a moment. Besides our own family, who did God use in your life to get you to where you are right now? There is a storyline before your storyline. 
when we really ponder that, it can get pretty amazing. When we think about the people whom God used to guide us at key moments, when we really really let that sink in, we come away thankful. Maybe even a little, whoo. You know that person who said that crucial phrase to you at the key moment? I remember my youth pastor in high school, my InterVarsity Christian Fellowship staff worker in college, my InterVarsity Christian Fellowship staff worker in seminary, my therapist from almost 20 years ago. Who do you remember? Thank you, God. Because before there was you here, there were others that came before you there and there and there and there and there and there and there. We are all on God's assembly line. And we all have a role in it. Both to receive and to give. No doubt, David would always remember this guy named Samuel. Samuel was born, we think, around 1105 B.C. His mom was Hannah. Hannah had been married to Elkanah, but she was barren with no children. So you can see, and this is a major theme of the Old Testament, right? Promise and then a threat to promise, right? God promises to raise up his people, and then there's always a threat to it. Here, the threat is barrenness. Uh Uh-oh, barren. What's going to happen, right? Well, Samuel's mom, Hannah, prays. She prays with deep anguish to the Lord and then promises to give her son to the Lord if he's born. The Lord honors her. She gives birth to Samuel and she honors her vow and dedicates him And he later ministers under Eli the priest. So before there was David, there was Samuel. Before there was Samuel, there was Hannah. Before there was you, there was someone else. And someone else before them. This is God's steady working faithfulness. God is so good. Samuel grows up. And all Israel later come to recognize Samuel... As a prophet of the Lord. Someone who speaks on behalf of God. In fact, Samuel Samuel becomes a leader of all Israel for all his days. Samuel gets older. He gets up in age. Then he asks his sons to take over the family business, so to speak. But they aren't anything like Samuel. And they blow it. They mess up. They are, as the text uh, says, well, they're insufficient. (laughs) Put it that way. So the people catch this and they say, all right, we're not going to have Samuel anymore. We're not going to have Samuel's sons anymore. So we want a king. Samuel doesn't like this at all. And when he prays about it, the Lord tells him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God tells Samuel, essentially, listen to him. Warn them that the reigning king isn't always going to be a picnic. 
But then God says, okay, give him a king anyway. God first leads Samuel to a guy named Saul. Saul came before David. Before there was David, there was Hannah, Samuel, and then Saul. (laughs) Samuel declares Saul the Lord's anointed ruler first. He guides Saul. And God, we're told, changes Saul's heart, including the spirit coming upon him. Saul becomes a king at 30, reigns until he's 72 years old, but Saul blows it. Again, this theme of God's promise and the threat to God's promise. Uh Uh-oh. There's always this sort of uh uh-oh moment in the Old Testament. Oh, no. What's going to happen next? What are we going to do now? This guy Saul is blowing it. Saul makes offerings to God that Samuel was supposed to make. And then Samuel confronts him and says, "Uh uh-uh. Basically says, "Uh uh-uh. Dude, you blew it. You're done. So by chapter 15, the chapter right before this one, we're told that God regrets ever making Saul king. And an angry Samuel confronts Saul. Saul admits he sinned. Samuel declares to him, your reign is over. And we're told that the Lord regretted that he'd ever made Saul king of Israel. Saul looked the part, but boy was he a disaster. Still, in the aftermath of all this, in in the midst of the uh uh-oh, there's God. It's always the God of the uh uh-oh. That's a big part of the Old Testament. God tells Samuel, it's a new day. It's time for a new king. And that's how we get to our chapter today. God tells him, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel's response of going to Jesse, David's dad, uh, to be to to uh, choose one of his sons to be king. Well, Samuel is freaked out by this. <laughs> the idea of anointing a king while there's still a king. Well, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it this way: It is hazardous to anoint a king when there already is a king. Samuel asked God, and this is a smack of honesty here in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. You know, our Old Testament heroes are human. And in uh, chapter 16, verse 2, you heard it. He says, he says to him, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Well, in response to that, Saul, God doesn't give Samuel a pep talk. What does God give? He gives him a liturgy of sorts. This is what I mean. Verse 2. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Notice that God doesn't assure Samuel that Saul won't hurt him. What God does do to get Samuel through this is say, take a heifer. Make a sacrifice to God in the midst of it. This is likely, as scholar Joyce Baldwin says, this is likely a fellowship offering that uh, Samuel's being told to make here. 
It's from Leviticus chapter 3. This was how the Old Testament Israelites worshipped God. So essentially, what God is telling Samuel to do in the midst of his fear is, worship. Take a worship service along with you. In other words, when Samuel is afraid to do what God asks him, God gives him a way to worship him. The book of Leviticus, where we get this fellowship offering, is like the Old Testament book of worship. It gives patterns for how people were to draw near to God in regular fellowship with God. So when God says to Samuel, take a heifer, God is essentially saying, go into this scary situation, move out into this challenge in worship through a pattern of worship that is familiar to you. We conquer our fears and anxieties and whatever ails us, not by pumping ourselves up with a pep talk, but by worshiping the living God, the deliverer of Israel. Take a heifer. In other words, as you and I step into risky obedience, praise God. As you engage your fears on the mission God gives you, first, praise God. Look up. Take a heifer. Whatever taking a heifer meant for the Israelites in this, in this worship, this is called a sacrifice of worship, what it meant for them was sacrificing an animal to Yahweh. That gives us the perspective we need. When we look up in worship, it gives us the perspective we need. What patterns in your life help you do that? What prayer pattern helps you look up? Jill and I have used the, the Book of Common Worship for the, from the um, Episcopal Church. And there's some wonderful language in there. Like It's like our heifer. It's like father of majesty unbounded. I mean, you hear the language, the, the, the theological, biblical poetry and the Book of Common Worship. It sticks with you. It helps give you perspective. What does that for you? What is your heifer to help you worship God? In scary moments. Maybe it's a certain hymn. Maybe it's a particular Bible verse. Maybe it's a way of praying. Maybe it's a, a, a Christian song. Or maybe it's a special place where you've prayed a lot and that blesses you. Or maybe it's a memory of when God worked. Whatever it is, take it with you as you face who or what God is calling you to face, especially when it's scary, take that heifer with you. When we do that, it gets us out of ourselves. It helps us look up, which is essential for moving forward. And notice, it's not like Samuel is told to pray and then, well, he's got to figure it out on his own. No, Samuel literally takes his heifer his sacrifice, his liturgy with him into the situation. And then he deploys the sacrifice right in the midst of the challenge. Prayer, liturgy, ways of worshiping God are mobile. We can take them anywhere. That's absolutely essential for Samuel here. Because as he helps choose Israel's next king, It doesn't play out like his mind thinks it will. (laughs) And we all go into situations with a bias of sorts. And sometimes God is in that. Sometimes God uses that. But sometimes not. 
Sometimes our bias moves with the spirit. Sometimes the spirit must challenge and correct our bias. Such is the case here. Samuel is more able here to hear the surprising challenge to his bias because he's got his heifer. He's oriented himself toward God and out of himself. So he's looking beyond his bias toward God. That's what a good liturgy, that's what good prayer, that's what good worship does for us. When we, just, when we surrender to the God whom we know in scripture, sometimes this God will surprise us more often than we think. Verse seven, the Lord does not look at the human, the Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, in this verse, Samuel's entire paradigm is blown by the voice of God. God's priority is clear here. It's the heart. Not David's achievements, not what David's accomplished, not David's appearance, not his looks. God looks at the heart. In Hebrew, heart is labab. The heart, the conscience, the will. So that's what matters to God. But notice it's not what matters first and foremost to David's own family. No one in David's family paid him any mind. When Jesse, David's dad, refers Samuel to him, he just says dismissively, they're still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. In his book on David, Leap Over a Wall, the late great Eugene Peterson says that the Hebrew for the youngest, Hakaton, carries undertones of insignificance, of not counting for very much. As Eugene Peterson puts it, David is the family runt. But, Peterson concludes, yet David was chosen. Chosen not for what anybody saw in him, but because of what God saw in him. When we enter a scary or hard task by seeking to seek God, to see God, seek God through our heifer, through our praise and worship, we will start to see like God sees. And we will at times discover that God's priorities may not be our priorities. We try so hard to be significant. We try to be major, accomplishing something, achieving something we can bring to God. That's not necessarily always bad. You get these big, ha- the B-hags from the, uh, from the book um, uh, on uh, Good to Great, if you know that book. Big, huge, audacious goals, B-hags, right? Well, they can energize us and they have their place in the kingdom. But notice carefully what our king's priorities are. The king chooses his little king, not by looking at his bags or his achievements, but by looking at his heart. And notice this, it's not the assumption of our biblical text that just because someone is high achieving means that they have a good heart. Apparently, God's priority is the size of our hearts, not the size of our achievements. And the two are not automatically the same. Well, the text tells us, so Samuel took a horn, took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Notice, after all this, we have yet to hear a single word from David. 
Can you imagine? But look at all that God has done to get David to this moment. Before you and I even know what hit us, before we can even speak or make our plans, I mean, you want you know that joke. You ever hear that joke? You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. I mean, sometimes, right? I mean, sometimes God works on our plans. I'm not saying God doesn't, but was this David's plan? Did he get up in the morning expecting to be anointed the next king of Israel? Probably not. But in walks Samuel. Before Samuel, there was Hannah. In between Samuel and David, there was Saul. And now, there is David. Look at the whole cast of characters whom God sweeps into his faithfulness. You and I are likely here because at some point, someone took a step of risky obedience along the way. And it may well be that such people themselves are works of amazing, miraculous power that raised them up against all probability to do what they did for you and for me. And so we find at the beginning of David's story, the theme that recurs again and again, and it's this, it's, this is the theme, God's steady working tenacious grace. That is God's answer to the uh uh-oh of the Old Testament. How many uh uh-ohs did you hear just even behind this story? And look at what God did. We live as a people not reigned by the uh-ohs, but reigned by God, who knows you and me, who knows just how to reach us. As we look at David's life over the next few months, we're going to see this again and again, that it's all about God's steady, tenacious grace. What happens after David's anointed? Well, stay tuned. But, but we get notice here at the conclusion of the passage that David was anointed and from that day on the spirit of the Lord came on David in power. Scholar B.T. Arnold writes that the spirit of the Lord is the vital force of God which bestows the recipient with his invigorating power. And I looked it up. The spirit here is the same word in Genesis. It's ruach. Great word means spirit, breath, wind, courage, God's spirit, God's breath, God's wind, God's courage. You see, God is still creating and recreating. He doesn't stop. He includes us in that as his co-creators. We are at work with the Lord, moving with Samuel toward the Davids, and we are God's Davids even now. St. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Where is God working to nudge you out in risk, to point out to someone God's work in their lives, to be God's new creation in the Ruach of God who is still working to recreate his world? And as we do that, we will find again and again that God is recreating us. May it be so for you and me. Come Holy Spirit and continue to move as we've heard your word today to push us out, to press us out, to move with David, move with Samuel. 
Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us in the uh-ohs of life. You are so good. Praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.